Okay there, saints. Exodus chapter 20. And tonight we're looking at verse 14. Let's bow our hearts. Father, as you've so faithfully led us through these words of yours, the revelation of your heart, we've seen, Lord, that it is beyond us, beyond what we're capable of doing to fulfill these truths in the ultimate sense of our heart. Our heart is desperate and we can move all things and yet you, Lord, through your grace, through your faithfulness, are faithful to reveal what is your heart, are faithful to reveal what is your faithfulness. And Father, you constantly use this to draw us to what is true to what is of you. And so tonight, as always, Lord, we're asking for ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, knit us to your heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, simply makes this declaration, you shall not commit adultery. So basically, you guys understand as well as I do that adultery in its purest sense, what we understand it to be, is a physical fornication that directly violates the marriage covenant. Just point blank, that's what it is. But I want you to understand something about this area as far as what God has established. In Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 through 28, we begin to see this beautiful picture of what God is doing. Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Verse 27, the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Now verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God creates man and he tells man and woman a very simple directive, be fruitful Absolutely incredible. In Genesis chapter 2, what we see is, is their um, same type of thing being spoken of as Adam is receiving his wife. He makes this statement in verse 23. Adam said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now he gives directives for all the rest of the descendants. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and the wife, and they were not ashamed. It's interesting that God is the very first one, think about this, the very first one that had a thought of physical intimacy between the husband and the wife. It was God's thought. It was God's declaration. He said, be fruitful and multiply. 
Adam figures it all out. He says, you leave your father and mother, you cling to your wife, we become one flesh. And so this, this first thought of that physical intimacy, if it comes from God, understand that it is an absolute, pure, and perfect thought. Do you understand that the union of a man and a woman is pure and perfect and God-ordained? And so we see here that as, as he gave this pure thought to the husband and wife, he gives the pure direction to the husband and wife, he gives the pure desire to the husband and wife, he gives the pure gift to the husband and wife. We begin to see that that is something that even Paul begins to teach in his epistles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to share a portion of this with you. I want to begin reading in verse 1. I want to read down to verse 5 because it talks about this area of this physical union that God has blessed, that God has called, that is very pure in its sense. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning verse 1, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. So he said... You know, you don't have intimacy, physical intimacy, with that of the a man shouldn't for a woman, a woman shouldn't have a man. So you don't touch a woman, a woman shouldn't touch a man. But because of, of the, the the struggles, he does say, let each man have a wife, let each woman have a husband, so that you can have that union, that joining. Now, in verse 3, it says this, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. And so we see this, this beautiful thing about you know, rendering the love that's due to one another. And then he says this in verse 4 and verse 5, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except for consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's an amazing thing that God had joined and called for the joining of the husband and wife. And Paul does the same thing. He brings an understanding that this kind of joining is pure, it's beautiful, and it's perfect. And God ordains it. And so what happens is, and maybe you've seen it, maybe you've experienced it, and because of the, the knitting of the hearts, and the knitting, of, well, the knitting of the bodies, there's also a knitting of the hearts. And when it comes to a knitting of the hearts, there's a desire to want to knit the bodies. It's just the, the way that, that we are. When we begin to fall in love, we want to express that love as, as greatly as we can. But when it comes to the expressions, I want you to realize Scripture is very clear on one point. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, the author of Hebrews makes this declaration, Marriage is honorable among all. Marriage is a beautiful thing. It is an honorable thing. And marriage is honorable among all. And the bed undefiled. So the intimacy that, that takes place in the marriage bed is pure. The intimacy that takes place within that marriage is pure. And here's a directive. A directive of do not commit adultery. Keep it pure. It's pretty simple. Just keep it pure. 
Now, think about it this way. If you had a glass of pure artesian spring water, chilled, oh, amazing. Would you drink it? Like, oh, absolutely. Now, what if you added some sewer water to it? Would you drink it then? And odds are you'd probably say, no, no. If it was sewer water, I wouldn't add that to that because it would make it what? Impure. Anything that you add, anything that you mix. And so when you reject the pure gift, and then you begin to change it, you defile it. And so what happens is you make it not pure. When you make it not pure, it's a breach of the covenant. The covenant that you make as husband and wife. If you've ever been part of a marriage or listened to a marriage, maybe you forgot what your vows were, or maybe if you've listened to a vow recently, this last summer I was able to do um, the, the, the vows, and it was a beautiful thing. And, and I asked this question, and, and I said, will you have this cautious woman, this man, to be your husband, to be your wife? So I asked, I asked both the husband and wife of this, and then I asked this question. To live together in holy marriage, will you love, comfort, and honor, keep her, keep him in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, and be faithful to him or to her as long as you both shall live? And amazingly, they both answered, we will. But it's about being faithful. There, there's there's this, this covenant that you're making to love, to comfort, to be a part of it. And so understand that when God has ordained this aspect of physical intimacy, understand that this only, and I'm going to stress that it only takes place in the context of, of the fulfillment of the covenant of marriage as a husband and wife. That's the only place it ever does. It's the only place that God allows it. And so we see here that this is what that context of intimacy is. It's a way of knitting the hearts and knitting the soul and knitting who we are. So what is the breaking of this covenant? Three things. It's there in your outlines. You're going to see three things highlighted. One is going to say loving. I'm going to actually say it should be called lack of loving, but for the sake of just alliteration, I called it loving. But it's actually the lack of loving. The second thing is lusting, and the third is leaving. All three of those constitute a breach of the covenant. Now, how does that flow? How does that fill in? Let me take you first to that passage in Romans. And there in the book of Romans, let me read to you, this passage beginning in Romans 13. Romans 13 is an, an incredible passage as Paul begins to try to point out what is this area of, of, of love, what is this area of the commandments. And he makes this statement, Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. When it comes to all the commandments, but he says this, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not what? Commit adultery. Do you understand? The very first of the commandment that he puts out dealing with this area of, Oh, no one anything except to love. Love your spouse. And, and he says, so you know the commandments, do not commit adultery. Then he goes on, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, all is summed up in this saying, nearly you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And he makes this statement in verse 10. And this is where it's key. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, it's amazing that when you give yourself over in marriage, you, you say, I will love, I will comfort, I will honor, I will do all these things, I will forsake everyone else except for you forever and ever and ever until death that we part. That's, that's the way it works. And you, you promise, I won't hurt you. You promise I, I won't, I won't, I will be faithful to you. You promise I'm going to comfort you. You promise I'm going to honor you. Incredible to see how this is the covenant that we declare. And, and, and then what happens is this, that we give ourselves over to the flesh. And then it's what? It's about me, not about you. And in that, that's where the pain comes. The pain comes where it's all about me, what I want, when I want, how I want it. It's all about me. And, and yet, you know, we see that passage in, in Rome or Galatians 5.19 where the works of the flesh are evident. And the very first thing on that list, of course, is adultery as well. But we begin to see that one of the areas of, of breaking this covenant in, is stepping out into that point of, of adultery is causing harm. And that's, that's what it says here in verse 10. Love does no harm. When you do harm to someone, you're breaking that covenant of marriage, saying, I want to honor you, I want to commit myself to you, I want to love you. And that's what we're supposed to do, that's what we're called to. So the first thing about breaking the covenant is simply causing harm, or it's found there in, in Romans you know, 13, verse 10. The second thing is lusting, and I want to take you to that passage there where Jesus explains what this whole area of adultery is. He makes that statement there in, in Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to start reading in verses 27 and verse 28. Jesus speaking declares this. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And then he makes this statement. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust. It's where you're no longer satisfied to what God has given you in the context that he's given you, saying, this is my gift to you. He who finds a life finds a good thing. This is my gift to you. And as he gives that gift, he says, this is a gift that, that you can begin to glorify me by ministering my love to this other person, your spouse. Incredible. But when you begin to long for someone else, when you begin to lust after someone else, he makes this statement. He said, you've already committed adultery. You're no longer loving and committing yourself to that person. You're forsaking them in your thoughts and in your passions and in your desires for someone else. And you can forsake them in your heart. Not simply just forsaking them physically, but you can forsake them in your heart as well. And so it's important to realize that it is that we understand, we've talked about it before, that adultery is that physical fornication, but there's this, this heart fornication when you are harming your spouse. You say, well, I'm not harming, you know, other than when you're not honoring and you're, you're, you're not loving, you're not doing those things, but again, when you lust after someone else. Keep in mind that Jesus isn't done with adultery in just verses 27 and verse 28. I want you to jump down to verse 31 for just a second here because it also deals with this area of leaving. 
In verse 31, he makes a statement. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Do you understand? The leaving is also that act of causing them to commit adultery. It's forsaking that covenant that you made. Now, lest you think that Jesus here is only speaking here in the New Testament, he's actually, in a sense, referring to this portion that is just prior to Matthew. If you back up one book to the book of Malachi, and I want you to see the heart of what Malachi begins to direct as far as the husbands and the wives and this area of the covenant of marriage, and the leaving in that marriage, he literally declares this, Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one having a remnant of the spirit? So understand, he's saying that what you're doing to your wife is you're dealing with her treacherously. So God is, is now saying, listen, I've got to deal with you because of what you're doing. You're dealing with your wife treacherously. She's your companion. You've made a covenant and God said, I made them one. I'm the one who made them one flesh. I'm the one who called them to be together. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. But he goes on to say in verse 15, when he says, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He sees godly offspring. See, there's a purity in the intimacy physically between a husband and a wife. And then the children are what? Well, it says here, they're godly, they're holy. They're, 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 they're children that come through that, that will and the purpose of God. It's how beautiful it is. And then he says this, therefore, after he says he seeks godly offspring, he says, therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. And just so you can understand the context in verse 16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. He says that divorce is that husband now leaving the wife of you, leaving the companion, leaving that gift that God brought to him. And because of that, the, um, the, the covenant children, you're, you're, you're no longer having them be what God called them to be. And so we begin to see here that, that breaking this covenant this whole area of what God has joined together, leaving them constitutes what he said there in Matthew 5 is what? You're causing her to commit adultery. Now, Matthew 19, he brings a little bit more clarity to this, and I want to share with you that portion of Matthew 19. What I want to do is this. I want to read verse 9 to you, and then I'm going to back it up to verse 1 again. And then I'm going to read all the way down to verse 19, but, or verse 9. But you've got to understand verse 9. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. And I say to you, 
that whoever divorces his wife except for sexually sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So when you divorce, for any other reason, with the exception of adultery, you, or sexual immorality, you then commit adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. We begin to see that, that here Jesus is very clear that the dividing is an adulterous act. The same thing that he was saying there in Matthew chapter 5, as, as we read those verses in 32, 31 and 32. Let me read from verse 1 again, so now that you can see this context coming up. Matthew 19, verse 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? He said, For this reason, men shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. God said, this is good, this is pure, this is wonderful. The joining of physical intimacy between the husband and the wife. They become one flesh. So then, verse 6, they are no longer two flesh, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, when God makes the two into one flesh, let not man separate. Let not man tear that asunder. There. So verse 7, they said, and why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put away? Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted. It was never the intention. You're saying Moses commanded. No, he didn't. He permitted you because of the hardness of his heart. Look at what he said. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. It wasn't God's idea. God says, this is it, a covenant for life. You guys, because of the hardness of your hearts and the weakness of your hearts, the, the, the sin nature that came upon us through the sin of Adam, we have this problem now. And so one of the issues that we have, and there, there's a two-form problem, is this. One is that problem of someone going astray. That's a problem. We're going to be looking at that in just a moment. But there's another problem that it, it brings up, and that's this. How do I forgive? How, how do I forgive that? And those are the two things that are really, really difficult. And so this is why God said it, it, it was never a part. I've never desired for um, divorce. You, because of the, the, the hardness of your hearts, you because of the weakness of your flesh, Moses permitted it, but from the beginning it wasn't so. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. So understand that the, the one flesh, as we see, is not just the joining of, of the physical flesh. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to read it to you. It's in 1 Corinthians 6.16 and it makes this declaration. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. What happens is when there's a joining of the bodies physically, in that act of physical intimacy, there's also this joining of the minds and the hearts and the souls in a deeper way than any other thing. And when you have that joining, and this is what he says, do you not know that he is joined to a harlot, one body for the two, he says, shall become one. There's this knitting of the two. They become one in, in so many crazy ways. And this is where when a young couple prior to marriage, if they get involved intimately, physically, they have a hard time thinking straight. They really do. All of a sudden, it's like, well, I, I, I feel for him, and I'm connected to him, I'm knit to him, and I'm knit to her, and I'm connected to her, and they can't see, but it's not a healthy relationship. Why? Because I'm already invested. I'm already, my, my soul is knit to their soul in a way that shouldn't be. And so we see here that what happens is that when sin entered the world, the effect Effects of this sin carried over into this marriage relationship. And in a sense, that marriage relationship did actually build on a curse. I want to take you to a portion in Genesis chapter 3, just so you can kind of follow with and see the flow. What, what, what God began to do is this. In Genesis chapter 3, he made this declaration, and so... What God said to the woman in verse 16 was this. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and the pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The wife is going to want to have the heart of her husband. The wife is going to want to have the mind of her husband. The wife is going to want to have all that intimacy with her husband in this relationship. And then he says this in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you not, cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and in dust you shall return. It's interesting, the woman's desire, the passion is for the husband's heart, the husband's mind, the husband's soul. And there's this kind of a glitch what happens because sometimes one spouse has a desire for just the physical intimacy. And the, another spouse has a desire for the emotional and the connection and that intimacy. And this is what we see here in verse 15 or verse 16 with the wife. Your desire is going to be for your husband. But what is the, the husband? Well, he has a desire, but understand what he feels his needs are. His desire is now for work. He now has to, to literally, as it says, you shall... The cursed is the ground. It's just not going to freely give you everything you need. You've got to work and toil and sweat to try to get anything. And the husband's desire is, i got to work. i got to work. We've got to eat. i got to do this. i got to do this. Have you ever seen that in a young couple? Where, where, where the wife says, I'm not connecting intimately like we did when we were dating. How he talked to me and we shared our hearts and we shared everything. And now it's work, work, work all the time. And yet this is part of the curse. 
This is part of what happens. And so keep in mind that this, this, when sin entered the world, this curse entered the world. But you have to understand, and this is where it's so true. When Jesus was on the cross, he took the curse away. That we come back to what God initially said, that there's a union, this beautiful union that let them have dominion. Let them come as partners. And so it is such a beautiful thing that God has ordained, that God has orchestrated as far as this is the Lord and this is his heart and this is how he begins to open up that whole direction to say, you know, God wants us to have this covenant in a way that we do honor, we do lift up, we do love, and we give ourselves completely to that person and only to that person. We forsake all others. But what happens is the, the gift of intimacy is corrupted. And what happens is we have this tendency of wanting to say, you know what, if I give myself over to a mental pleasure, I give myself over to a physical pleasure, that it isn't so bad. There was actually a billboard in California, and it said this. Life is short, have an affair. Absolutely crazy. And, and in our society, we understand that there's a huge thing within divorce and within divorce lawyers and, and, and how much, you know, everything in the family begins to be destroyed as it's ripped asunder. And yet what God desires is simply this. He wants... To have that, that one intimacy just between the husband and the wife and, and that exploration outside is, well, we're going to see in just a second. If you turn to Genesis chapter 39, we begin to see that there with Joseph, that he has this situation where he's now taken into the home of Potiphar. He's an officer of the Pharaoh, captain of the guard. And Joseph finds favor in his sight, and basically he has control of everything in the house. And so we begin to see, beginning in verse 6 of Genesis 39, thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what, what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form of appearance. So Joseph took care of everything in Potiphar's house. And now Potiphar's wife's thinking, you've taken care of everything, take care of me. And, and we see here in verse 7, the king to pass after those things, that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. She had no desire to fulfill her covenant. No desire for purity with her husband. So she's deciding that this intimacy in marriage, I can corrupt this, it isn't a, a bad thing. Verse 8, he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. And then notice what he says, and this is the key to adultery. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Understand what, what Joseph here recognizes this sin is. He recognizes that it is a great wickedness. And so she doesn't heed him, but day after day after day, and finally she grabs a hold of him, and he just leaves his jacket, flees. And, and I think it's just an amazing thing 
to see what the heart of God and what the world sees. It has limited adultery, not thinking it's a great wickedness. And now all of a sudden, it's, it's what? It's just having an affair. Isn't that nice and whitewashed? It was interesting. I was, I was teaching on this on a Sunday not that long ago. And, and I, I made note of, of David after I said, it's called adultery, it's, it's not called an affair. And then I was reading through and it says, and David had an affair with Bathsheba. And I was like, oh my goodness, slip of the tongue. Isn't it amazing how it was just so easy how we whitewash these things? And yet that was never God's heart. But I want you to see that what God can do is this. He can do something amazing. His word can become power. And with the spirit, it can become power. Now you can look at these words and you can see it in one way, but you can also see it in another. Now, when you see the commandment that we're looking at now, you shall not commit adultery. So often we see it as this angry finger of God pointing at men and women. Says, you shall not do this. And yet... How do you know it's not the power of God and the power of the Spirit says, you're not going to do this. You shall not do that. You're going to love God. You're going to do all these other things. You you shall not commit adultery. God's Spirit is going to come upon you and you're you're not going to do this. And if you believe God to say, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I am not. I'm going to believe your word. It's not going to be this this angry pointing at me saying "You, you, you cannot do and you will not do. But all of a sudden it becomes this whole beautiful thing. I will not. I I shall not commit adultery. And and it's such a beautiful thing when your heart is, I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to love God. I'm going to honor. I'm going to bless. I'm going to do those things. And it becomes a word of power, not a word of chastisement. But here's the problem. When unfaithfulness happens in a marriage, a huge divide begins to happen because you've already ripped asunder that one flesh. And now what begins to happen is this, that the, there's two major mountains that have to be overcome. One mountain is this. One spouse has to change and validate the changes. I'm no longer going to do this. And I will validate the changes. Not just, I told you I wouldn't do it, stop, heart. No, no, there should be evidences after evidences after evidences after evidences that there is a change. And you need to validate those changes. And the problem is that so often we don't want to have that point of repentance. We don't want to have that point of brokenness. We don't want to have that point of of just saying, I'm going to give myself completely over to you. And you need assurances. And I want to give you assurances. And so I'm going to validate over and over and over again for as long as we both shall live that I'm committed fully and foremost to you. And so that's a tough one. When unfaithfulness happens, one spouse has to, has to change because I'm no longer going to be unfaithful, but I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to allow that, that whatever validation you need to say, am I faithful? I will, I will help you in that validation. I'll realize that I've already broken a trust. I will do what I can to restore that trust. And so I have to yield to what their mind and their heart needs for validation. And and I think that's a beautiful thing to do. But then one spouse has to forgive. 
and then they have to say, yeah, I will accept the validation and, and I will forgive you. That's a huge, huge step in a marriage. Because I'll tell you what, that, that um, when, when one you know, yields to allow this physical union and, and one now has to say, I've got to you know, breach this chasm and I've got to learn to forgive, this both are huge, huge chasms that have to cross. The, the wounding of, of a spouse who has been betrayed the spouse who's trying to come back saying, I want to validate who I am. And understand, that the, with this chasm of sin, there's only one thing that can bridge that chasm. And that's the cross. Um, if you've ever seen, therefore, the, um, within those tracks, and they say, you know, the sin is the divide, and you have man, you have God. The only thing that can breach that is, is the cross that we can walk across. You can't bridge that, that chasm. And so understand that, that when you go to the cross of Christ as the one who has broken the covenant and has gone to someone else, all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, that I've received the, the grace of God and, and I've received the, um, His grace and so He's also given me through this repentance the grace to change. And the grace to love and the grace to accept um, the area that, that I've wounded and I now need to restore. But the other thing that he does, not only does he give us the, the grace of forgiveness for those that have entered in, but then God also gives to that spouse that incredible grace to forgive. You understand that the, the whole area of this is, is Jesus Christ and the grace that he bestowed upon us. He gives you the, the grace to repent. He gives you the grace to change. He gives you the grace to do that. But he also gives you the, the, the grace to, in a very true and complete way, forgive. You can do that. Here's the issue. So often when it comes to this area and, and wanting to have forgiveness and wanting to have that area of, of restoration, the problem being is this. There's a recognition that I have absolutely blown this relationship. I don't deserve this relationship. Is there any way that this relationship can be restored? And they, they literally, they look and say, well, how can you forgive that, that, that what I've done to destroy this relationship? I want you to go to a passage in Luke chapter 15. You know it well. It's called the prodigal son. And I know it deals with the son and the father. But what we're also going to see is this is what biblical forgiveness looks like. When someone commits adultery, guess what? They don't feel a worth. And they want to restore a relationship, not believing that it's possible. But yet the other person can come and rejoice and bring them in and say, Oh yeah, yeah, we still have this relationship. And I can forgive completely and, and, and perfectly. Let's take it to verse 11. A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of good that falls on me. So he divided them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Well, he left. And he sinned. And understand that now as he's at that point, 
he comes to a point of wanting to be in need in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And yet I perish with hunger and I will arise and I will go to my father and I'll say, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I'll tell you what, this is the heart of someone who's been unfaithful. I am not worthy to be your spouse. I feel no worth. I feel rejected. I don't feel that I could come in and, and take that role that I had once had because of my sin. Because I left. And I sinned horribly. But amazingly, what happens is this. In verse 20, he arose and he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. You understand the father was waiting for him and waiting for him and waiting for him. And this is a hard thing. I am not saying that it's an easy thing for a spouse who's been betrayed to be waiting for the husband to finally say, I'll come back. But when they start making that journey, it's a beautiful thing for what? Well, every time that we walk away from God, what does he do? <laughs> He's always after us. He's always chasing us. As soon as the father sees him, he goes running after the son. He didn't say, all right, come on, come on, keep coming. You know, he, he went after his son. And, and so beautifully we see this, that he, when he was still far away off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck, kissed him. And the son said to the father, I sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robes and put, on a, put a ring on his hand, sandals on the feet, the fatted calf. Bring the fatted calf, kill it, let's eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and now is alive. He was lost and found and they begin to be merry. Why can the father do this? Because through the grace of God, he's able to forgive completely and wonderfully. And he says it's, it's done, it's paid. And amazingly, we begin to see that this is the, the heart of what forgiveness looks like, biblical forgiveness looks like. One person who has sinned feels no worth and feels, I can't come back. Another person says, yeah, you, you've, you've absolutely botched it. And sort of like the older son, get rid of him. He's blown everything. Now you're bringing him back like nothing ever happened. <laughs> That's grace. See, we want to be like the older son. And it's a dangerous thing when one person you know, leaves the marriage, sins in that way, and the second person in the marriage, the other spouse who's been betrayed, now has the attitude of the oldest son and not the attitude of the father. You don't deserve. You haven't earned. And yes, you are absolutely right. You are not worthy. But who is worthy before God? That's the question. Who's worthy? And the bottom line is what? There's none worthy. There's none. And so we begin to see this, this area of forgiveness. One last passage I want to share with you, found in John chapter 8. You'll know it once we start reading it. But it, it makes this statement, verse 3 of John chapter 8, when the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now we know that according to the scriptures, that when someone commits adultery, the punishment is death. It's just death. 
And I want you to understand that when we've committed adultery, either through the act of physical or the act of not loving the way that God has called us, love, honoring, cherishing, giving ourselves to them, lusting after another relationship. And keep in mind, in our day and age, there's two ways that that it happens. One is for the men, for the most part, they're actually seeing something physical and desiring that physical, and it's everywhere. But it happens so often that with the, the women is they're, they're, they're caught up in dialoguing. A woman would catch up with an old schoolmate on Facebook or they'll begin to dialogue and say, oh, I remember. They, they listen to me and they're kind to me and, and they respond to me and they understand. It's like, my husband doesn't. And it is incredible to see that they can give themselves over emotionally. They can give themselves over mentally. They can give themselves over, not physically, and not in an area of lust with the physical, but the lust of what? Someone to connect with me emotionally. And yet you're needing to be forsaking all others, cleaving unto them. And so we begin to see here that within that physical act of adultery, within that, you know, um, the, the leaving or within that area of, of that, um, the, the, the lusting, wanting something that is not, that your spouse doesn't have, whether it's physical or, or the emotional connection, or simply just leaving. What do we do when we've been divorced? What do we do when we're married to someone who's been divorced? Are we doomed? And the answer is absolutely not. The beautiful thing is the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. doesn't mean that we pursue those things, but we realize that, that once in the state that I am in, I want to commit to God that now that I know what his heart is, I want to glorify him. Because I want you to see what happens in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Amazingly, he doesn't say, oh no, no, don't, don't stone her. He doesn't say that. He doesn't deny the law. He doesn't deny what should be happening here. But he understands that this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, that there's probably a man missing somewhere here on this scene. And so it was a test. And so what they do is they said to him, verse 4, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded that she should be zoned. What, what do you say? This, verse 6, they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. They're trying to, again, corral him into... Heads you lose, tails you lose. You can't win no matter what you answer. So he just begins to write. And so verse 7, what do they do? Well, they continued asking him. And then he raised himself up in verse 7 and said that, He who is without sin among you, let him throw stone into first. So you who are sinless, you, you chuck the first one. Now absolutely amazing he just stooped down and he wrote on the ground again. And then those who heard it, being convicted of their conscience, went out one by one, 
beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said, well, where are those accusers of you? Has no one condemned you? Now this is the question. Doesn't, isn't that what the enemy does, how he condemns? Look at you, you did this, you did that. And, and we don't understand that what these 10 words are, these 10 commandments are what they're a plumb line. They show absolute perfection. And they show every part of our heart and every part of our marriage and every part of our life that is a flaw to absolute perfection. And we will all fail. In one form or another, we will all fail. But the beautiful thing is that the enemy may, may want to condemn us. And this is what Jesus said in verse 10. When he raised himself up and he saw no one the woman, he said to her, woman, where are the accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Now, she was caught in adultery. She should have been stoned. Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says this, neither do I condemn you. But don't do this anymore. Go and sin no more. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus begins to declare. He begins to show this, this, this beautiful heart of what the love of God is for us. And the love that we should have for one another. And the grace and the forgiveness that we can have towards those. When we look to this area, this commandment. We're beginning to see how it relates to one another and how it really affects love. Because remember, we already talked about in, in the, um, the, when we looked at the whole area of, of, you know, honor your father and mother. We saw how that was this very small micro society and how you teach them to love and you teach them to give and how you teach them all those things. And then the, the murder is what? Absence of love. But understand, adultery is the same thing. It's an absence of love. And we're going to see that if you go through this, it's all a lot. It's an absence of love. It's about me, 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 not you, you, you. And I think it's important to realize here that, that you shall not commit adultery. Now you can hear it again by an accusation. And I'm telling you, I'm not telling you, you shall not commit adultery. What I'm saying is, you don't have to commit adultery. <laughs> you can walk in the love of God, walk in the grace of God, and you can walk in a way that says, you know what? I will not commit adultery. I just won't. It's not who my heart is. It's not who I am. I'm going to seek to, to honor God with one thing. Because the, the, the marriage that we have of those who are married, keep in mind that it is not your marriage. It's a covenant before God and that person. See, the marriage that you are in is you're a steward of it. And you're only one aspect of the steward of your role. And you have to be faithful in that role of, of marriage. And, and what we realize is, is that faithfulness is what? Love, honor, cherish, sickness, and health, forsaking all others. And I'm going to give myself to you. I'm going to seek to... to with everything that is in me, as the Spirit comes, as I want to glorify God with in my role in this stewardship of marriage, everything I do to my spouse, it isn't because they've earned it, it isn't because they deserve it, it's because Jesus died for me, and I'm saying, I owe you. 
And if he's saying, well, this is what I want. I want your payment to me to be to show this person, your spouse, how much I love them. I want you to show them my love. And I get to do that for Jesus. I become an instrument for his love to my spouse. And which is a great thing because when my spouse loves me, there are times where she shouldn't. <laughs> and times where I feel like I'm that prodigal son. I am not worthy of, of that love. Um, but yet God in his grace, she has this love for me. And, and it overcompensates everything. She just loves me and loves me and loves me. And this beautiful thing is if she loves me and I'm the benefit of this love, not because I've earned it, not because I'm going to do something back to her, say, okay, well, you did this for me, now I'll do this for you. She does it because she loves Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ died for her sins. And he says, I want you to become the instrument to show my love to that guy. You know, oh, I get to, I get to. And I get to do the same thing. And it is about looking to whether they've earned or deserved it or they should have that. It's, and it's not, you're not doing it because of them. You're doing it because of Jesus Christ. And it's our love for God and then our love for who he put us in this relationship with. When we realize the beauty and the wisdom of God, because what marriage becomes is this. It's a college course. It's a college course. It's growing up. In our spiritual faith, it's called a death 101. It's no longer just me and what I want to do. Now, Paul says in Corinthians, like when you're single, you give yourself fully to the Lord. But when you're married, you're not focused on what you're focused on, on how you can glorify the Lord in your marriage first and foremost. And then when your house is in order, then you begin to minister outside. That's a beautiful thing that God begins to do. And so it's an important thing to realize what this covenant is. Some of the things to say, wow, what do I fail? What do I fail? Understand that in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, every one of us, if we fail, is that woman. And Jesus says to us what he says to her, neither do I condemn you. I don't change. Don't do it anymore. But I don't condemn you. The love of the Father who comes running to us and say, yes, yes, you're, you're, you're back, you're back. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. This is huge. So understand what it is and understand that we've all failed, but understand that when we do fail, that there are chasms that do need to be crossed. It's not an easy thing. You don't wake it. It's not like we're all going to be fine. There's chasms that have to be crossed, but the beautiful thing is, is this, that that chasm can be crossed through the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then God can once again restore that which was torn asunder. He's so good. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you that each and every commandment is holy, it is true, it is just. And there's a purity and perfection of intimacy that you've given us in, in marriage that is holy and righteous and pure and undefiled. And the world takes it and sin takes it and makes it uh, just add sewer water. Makes it corrupt. Father, thank you that we can always come back and we can always receive forgiveness. But teach us what it is to have a heart that says, I will not commit adultery. 
I'll love, I'll honor, I'll cherish. Do that work within us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. Amen.